The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO and founder of PRRI, a former assistant professor of religious studies at Missouri State University. He's also the author of The End of White Christian America and White Too Long. Robert, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, now, let's get to probably uh, the most serious question I'll need to ask you um, during our time together, which is uh, how disappointed are you that your Mississippi College Choctaws are not going to have a chance at the uh, national title game against Alabama or Clemson this year? <laughs> All right, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't really been tracking it. Uh, so I guess the answer is um, uh, zero disappointment um, in that uh, I really haven't been, uh, been, been keeping up with uh, my alma mater's uh, you know, football, football record uh, this year. So, so what you're conveying is they don't call you on a yearly basis asking you to give to the, uh, the booster club to, to beef up the Choctaw sports? <laughs> No, they haven't. Or the Choctaw sports. Um, it, 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 it might be uh, the, the sports side. Um, I, I played soccer um, when I was at Mississippi College, actually, and it was like the most neglected sport on campus. So 
I think that it'd be a hard sell uh, getting me to give money to a football program. Uh, so, you know, we know your work and we're going to get into your new book and we're going to get into your organization that you founded here in just a bit. Um, but it is fascinating to track your journey. So uh, take us take us behind the scene a little bit. You know, how did, how did you get to where you are today? Uh, well, it's yeah, it's been a little circuitous. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I um, was mentioned, you know, I, I went to Mississippi College, so I have a you know, degree from Baptist uh, college. I was actually a math and computer science major um, uh, as as an undergrad, and then um, in my sort of final years of, of college, um, uh, you know, was uh, kind of sorting out what I was going to do, and um, was kind of torn between law school and uh, because of my interest in politics and seminary, uh, because of my interest in religion. Um, I ultimately, went the seminary route and was actually <clears throat> uh, did a master of divinity degree at Southwestern. Uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth uh, there, um, and I uh, was on track uh, to kind of go into the ministry and really caught the academic bug and, and realized that um, I could really pull together these two interests in religion and politics, um, uh, you know, if, if I kind of went into teaching. And uh, so then did a PhD at, um, at Emory University's uh, program there, and uh, the program was called Ethics in Society. It was in the Graduate Division of Religion. Uh, and it was really a great mix. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, sociology, it was political theory, and then it was, uh, you know, theology as, as well. So got to pull all those things uh, together. Um, and then after, after uh, graduating, um, taught uh, at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, uh, for three years, um, and was really um, wanting to find a way to get, put the work on the ground a little more quickly and, and uh, the the sort of pace of you know putting out a, 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 a you know writing something that would see the light of day three years later um, in an academic journal um, was uh, I think not exactly the pace I was looking for and, and realizing I wanted to find a way to just kind of get it on the ground a little a little more and so um, I found my way to D.C. Um, worked at a number of think tanks um, in D.C. before um, kind of hanging out my own shingle and. In 2009, um, founded uh, PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, um, and really our goal was to, you know, uh, at the at the beginning, really was to just do public opinion work. And um, so I dusted off kind of, you know, the the quantitative side of uh, of my training and um, and set out to really try to keep our finger on the pulse of. Uh, what religious Americans were thinking um, in relationship to kind of politics and culture. So today that's still our mission is uh, to conduct independent research at this intersection of religion, culture, and politics, and to do that in a nonpartisan, independent way, um, and uh, and ultimately to make the, the data uh, available. So all of our uh, major research projects, um, we actually um, uh, not only put our transparent, we put out the data, but we actually release the data sets into the public domain uh, for secondary research by political scientists and social scientists who want to um, kind of dig in. Um, so we hold on to it for just just a year, and then we then we release it. Um, and we we probably put you know, half a million dollars worth of uh, social science data into the into the kind of academic public domain um, in a given year. And, and today we uh, we do uh, you know somewhere between fifty and hundred thousand interviews a year um, of of Americans uh, across the board, and with a special eye on uh, how religious affiliation, uh, both beliefs and practices, um, 
and identity, how those influence uh, people's views on a whole a whole range of issues. Well, I guess the good news for y'all is, you know, the last seven months, there really hasn't been anything to research or, uh, you know, comment on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it, it, it. The challenge has been, yeah, that's how quickly, um, you know, things are moving. Um, you know, in, in, in the public and they, they've moved from week to week and month to month. And so trying to keep our finger on the pulse has, has certainly been challenging with, you know, we've got kind of three, at least three major you know, rolling crises, um, you know, going on um, uh, right now, each of which in their own right, um, you know, would be a major thing to focus on. And, and so it, it, it has been a challenge um, over the last year, um, especially now we're on the home stretch of an election on top of everything else. Well, this summer, as if you weren't busy enough, you released a new book, uh, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Uh, the book is an invitation to examine the long history of the tangled mess of religion and racism. Uh, you wrote, a dizzying array of resources across multiple fields of human inquiry has been deployed to defend the idea of supremacy of whites over ethnic groups. By far, the strongest were theological arguments that presented white supremacy as a divine mandate. Um, Take us take us back to the the impetus of this book. Sure, um, you know, well, it's it's a personal book, um, and you know, so I've been talking about the social science hat that I I typically wear um, at as the head of PRRI, um, but um, you know, this book also has a lot of history in it. It's more history than I've ever written, and it also is probably about twenty five percent memoir, um, and it's um, really detailing my own journey um, and my family's journey. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, you know, the, the other piece of the narrative here is I grew up Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and, uh, you know, the kind of journey to this book is, I think, just a really a lifelong uh, journey of realizing how racial attitudes and particularly, um, you know, this kind of worldview of uh, that I, I think has been embedded in, in white Christianity, you know, from its inception in the U.S. Um, of uh, a kind of support for uh, the idea that that whites uh, are really superior and 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 meant to be um, over other other races, and it's something I think I, I couldn't have said overtly, you know, in my twenties or even my thirties. Um, uh, but but it's, you know, it's notable how hidden that history I think was for me. Um, so, for example, you know, growing up Southern Baptist, I didn't find out until I was actually in seminary. Um, about the the origin story of our own denomination, and, and that is that in 1845, um, you know, it was formed explicitly to support the idea uh, that one could be a minister of the gospel and own other human beings um, on the basis of the color of their skin. I mean, and that compatibility, the commitment, and the defense of that compatibility um, was, uh, you know, right at the heart and right at the foundation of the formation of the denomination that shaped me. Um, and so I think getting serious about those origins, how they have been with us, how they've shaped theology, how they continue to do that today. Um, and and I, I appreciate you uh, using the word invitation describing the book. And, and I, I think that's consistent with how I think about it, that in some ways I, I wrote the book um, uh, with the idea that it would be an invitation for others to kind of look over my shoulder um, of my own journey um, on the, on these issues, and to kind of see what I see from you know both my personal standpoint and from my perch, you know, looking at all of these all the social science data, um, and then to ask some hard questions, you know, about like okay, so if this is if this is in our past and it's in our present, 
and it being this kind of presence of white supremacy is still with us. Um, you know, um, how can we address it? How can we tell the truth about it? And, and where do we go from here? You know, I think one of the aspects of the book that uh, was most remarkable to me is you, you go through each mainline denomination, their history connected to slavery, Jim Crow laws, the civil rights movement, and today. And it's it's not a pretty history. Um, and, and to our listeners, our CBF listeners, it's easy to detach ourselves from this because we're not named. <laughs> Lest we forget that uh, 30 years ago, we were Southern Baptist. And this is our legacy. Many of our churches, in fact, were pistons in this engine of white supremacy, um, which, which draws me to ask, um, why is it so hard for white people to come to terms with uh, maybe not this history, since I believe most level-headed white people can recognize it, but, but it's the reality of how they continue to cause white supremacy today. So why is it so hard for white people to see their existing role in white supremacy? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I should say a word about the term. I mean, I, I very deliberately use the term white supremacy. It's in the subtitle of the book, the subtitles, you know, the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. Um, struggle with that a bit, um, uh, but not because of a, an accuracy term, but just because I, I know that many white whites and white Christians in particular recoil, um, you know, at that term and and immediately think, well, this has nothing to do with me, right? Because we immediately think of, oh, those are people in white sheets and uh, burning crosses in people's yards or spitting on people or throwing bricks at, at uh, you know, civil, the civil rights um, demonstrators. Um, and that's not us. I mean, I think that's the initial reaction. Um, but I think if, if we don't take it to be that extreme thing, but we really do think about um, what does it mean, you know, that we come from um, and, and this is true, not just of Baptists, it's not just true just of evangelicals in the South. It's true of white mainline Protestants, and it's true of white Catholics as well. It's one of the things that the book is very careful to say. This is not just an evangelical or a Baptist problem. Um, but what does it mean that you know our theology, our churches uh, were formed for hundreds of years in the American context um, and sat so comfortably with this idea that, um, that whites were really divinely intended to be – there was a racial hierarchy – um, in, in the in the world, and that um, this was as God ordained it, and that one of the roles of whites uh, was to govern um, uh, and to be literally over in this hierarchy other um, other other races. And, and you know there was a kind of paternalistic way of understanding that that uh, that that the role then with whites was to quote unquote civilize you know other people, bring them into Christianity, bring them into you know, a higher role of development, but that all depended on this idea that that other races were inferior um, and um, and a very um, hierarchical and uh, uh, you know very uh, you know patriarchal even in you know, a role um, of understanding these things. So I, I think you know taking this this history seriously and realizing that you know I mean my parents uh, you know I, I was born in '68. Um, and my parents grew up in Jim Crow era in Macon, Georgia, you know, and this was very much uh, right in uh, in line with the things that they were overtly taught. Um, you know, there it, it's not that far back there. I think that we we I think so often pretend that it's so far back there, but um, you know that that my parents, uh, you know, my grandfather, for example, was um, a deacon at a at East Macon Baptist Church in in. Uh, uh, and in Georgia, and was uh, you know one of his his jobs uh, in the in the 1960s was to stand on the 
uh, steps of the church and ensure that no African Americans tried to enter the the sanctuary. Um, that was not an atypical you know thing. That happened in the north. It happened in Catholic churches in New York. Uh, there's you know an example of a priest standing on a um, uh, on the steps with a whip, uh, actually to drive off uh, any non-white people who were going to try to enter enter the sanctuary. So. You know, these things were more widely done and 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 more recent, I think, than than many people think, um, and they're very much still with us uh, uh, today, um, as the public opinion data that I kind of pull up um, in the book shows. So I think the it's just a defensiveness um, and a, a kind of willfulness of kind of pushing that so far back that it has nothing to do with us, or making that term so extreme that it has nothing to do with us. Um, but I, I think, you know, it, it, again, it's still with us in, in so many ways. Um, and I, I'm hoping that uh, you know, it is an invitation for us to take that seriously and to, and to realize that, you know, we've hardly begun to reform, you know, these practices. And so if we think back in these churches that were committed, how, you know, what sermons could they preach? What hymns could they sing? What scriptures could they read um, with that prior commitment uh, to white supremacy? And that, you know, our practices, we, there, there really hasn't been, I don't think anybody can say with a straight face, that there's been a massive reformation and accountability of white Christian theology with the recognition of how wrong we got it on issues of race for hundreds of years. Um, there, there really hasn't been a major reformation of our hymns and our, uh, our theology with that in mind. You say 1968? Yeah. Robert, you're pulling off 52 remarkably. <laughs> Congratulations. Great. What's the secret? Happy to hear that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's just so funny. <laughs> uh, PRRI released a study that found, uh, despite the social upheaval from George Floyd's murder in May, despite the overwhelming tr transparency of what Black Americans are experiencing each day, um, that has not done much to change the minds of white evangelicals about race. Why? Yeah, well, again, I, I think we're, you know, if we take the history seriously, we're talking hundreds of years, centuries, um, where this has been embedded. So I, I think it would be unrealistic to see it kind of un, unwinding, you know, in a series of weeks or months. Um, but, but we are seeing um, on the question, for example, of um, killing of unarmed African-American men by police here, this is one of the central, you know, questions that I used um, in, in the book to kind of uh, talk about. Um, this kind of existence and, and the kind of blindness to our unwillingness to see systemic racism um, in the country. So while we have overwhelming numbers of African-Americans, for example, saying that the killing of unarmed African-American men by police are uh, part of a broader pattern of how police treat African-Americans, very few white Christians see that um, and are willing to see that. So when we ask that question of white Christians, uh, what we get is, um, uh, you know, about two-thirds or more. Uh, and again, it's not just white evangelicals, but also white Catholics and white mainline Protestants, I mean, the more liberal end of the Protestant world, all lining up saying, no, these are isolated incidents. And I, I think the other kind of piece from the book that I use as kind of a control group or comparison group are white Americans without, uh, uh, who claim no religious affiliation and what's kind of remarkable is that in question after question, survey after survey, what you see is this. If you ask the question of who is closer to the concerns of African-Americans um, and, and the kinds of um, concerns that they're raising uh, around these issues, the answer is not white Christians. Uh, the answer is whites who claim no religious affiliation. So what it looks like, um, again, on 
question, not just this, some questions about Confederate flags and monuments, questions about economic mobility or the lack thereof or disparities among African-Americans, whether that's due to past discrimination, whole range of questions. The same pattern exists. And that is if you take your average white person and you add Christianity, Christian identity, they actually move further away from the concerns of African-Americans than nearer. Um, and the group that's closer to the concerns of African-Americans is actually whites without um, uh, are, are whites uh, who claim no religious um, affiliation. Um, and in the book, just to kind of put this, this kind of uh, um, uh, kind of crystallize this, I created a thing I called the racism index, which is a, a set of 15 different questions, kind of measure structural race attitudes around structural racism um, in the country and uh, standardize that score on a scale of one to 10 with 10 holding the most uh, racist attitudes and one holding the least. Um, and it was remarkable on the scale, um, for example, that uh, white evangelicals scored eight out of 10 um, on the scale, but white mainline Protestants and white Catholics essentially score seven out of 10 on the scale. African-Americans score two um, on the scale. So you can just see it not on one question and not just on one survey, but across a whole range of um, sociological data, this real, um, and, and it kind of leaves, you know, and even with putting in a bunch of controls in place, um, what you see is that it is, in fact, the Christian identity piece of this that is doing the work um, that is uh, really, I think, functioning to put kind of moral blinders on uh, white Christians uh, so they really don't see um, these the systemic issues. Yeah. One of the um, one of the best quotes from the book you wrote, uh, if we were recruiting for white supremacist cause on a Sunday morning, you'd be more likely to have success handing uh, out in the parking lot of the average white Christian church than approaching white sitting out of service at a local coffee shop. And I want to point out to our listeners that this is not a statement of opinion, but the facts from your research. You know, as, as you were uncovering these glaring facts and trends, um, were you surprised? Yeah. I mean, there were several times where I, I kind of said, okay, I got to run those numbers again. I can't be right. <laughs> You know, um, uh, and and I think particularly, you know, the other um, numbers on attendance, on church attendance, because, you know, even when you look at these correlations between white Christian identity and holding more racist attitudes, that positive correlation, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe if I look at, uh, for example, whites who attend religious services more often, the pattern will be different. Um, and in fact, it, it, it wasn't. At, at best, church attendance has, has really no effect. Um, and that is to say that both high attending and low attending white Christians, this positive co correlation between uh, their Christian identity and holding more racist attitudes stands up. Uh, and among evangelicals, um, you know, it, it's actually um, worse than that. It, it, in fact, um, the, high, the relationship between holding more racist attitudes um, and white evangelical identity is actually stronger among those who attend church more frequently. So in other words, on the issues of racial justice, attending church more frequently, controlling for everything else, um, uh, actually makes things worse. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. 
please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. And for pastors, you know, what do they do with this um, revelatory evidence of white supremacy within the church? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the great first step and, and I think freeing first step is to simply, uh, you know, make a commitment to tell the truth um, about our history and um, about, you know, how we got to be where we are. Um, you know, for example, I think one very concrete question many pastors and congregations could ask themselves, um, particularly white congregations, is to, is to ask the question, you know, why is our church building uh, located where it is, um, like why geographically are we where we are? And for for you know older churches um, that are at least forty or fifty years old, um, it's almost certain uh, that they are where they are because the neighborhood um, was designated as a white area of the city um, back in the fifties or forties. Um, uh, that you know when when there was a clear demarcations and red those practice of redlining. And designating certain areas in the city as black and certain areas in cities of, of white, um, you know, most likely that church is planted right smack in the middle of an area that was overtly considered white. Um, for those who are out in the suburbs uh, and for, for, for who started in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, the, the answer is probably, well, we followed white flight out of the cities uh, in, the, in the wake of the desegregation of public schools. Uh, for those who have um, private Christian academies attached to them, when did those start and why are they there? The great bulk of them started in the late 60s and early 70s, again, in reaction to Brown v. Board of Education to keep white Christian kids out of public schools with African-Americans. So I think if we just start you know, taking seriously, um, you know, the, telling the truth, really, and that we all kind of know but don't like to talk about, about the, that history, I think that's one uh, place to start, um, and and it's kind of a, a, a reckoning with the truth. Um, I think the other thing to do is um, you know build some communities with congregations of color, um, and and that I write about in the book. Um, actually, a CBF uh, related congregation, First Baptist Church in Macon, um, you know that uh, that I highlight the work they've done with a a sister church uh, that's predominantly African-American in Macon. And, and it's very clear that building community and building relationships um, makes all the difference um, in the world. Um, and that, that those relationships actually are probably the most powerful thing uh, to help uh, kind of white Christians grapple with this history, because if they're doing it out of a sense of love and concern for their African-American neighbors and, and in wanting to be in right relationship, with them, that's a much better, you know, motive, or, or much a positive motivation for undertaking what is absolutely difficult and and painful, uh, you know, work um, that has to be done. And I think the last thing um, is that 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 I'll mention here is, I think we really do have to make a serious effort at at reforming our theology and our hymns and and these church practices, and asking um, all the way up and down the line. Um, you know, how did this practice come to be the way it is? And and I'll name just one that's very central to Baptists and to evangelicals, and that is, um, you know, I think we need to reexamine our Christology and, and how we think about um, a this thing that has become so central. I mean, if there's anything I heard in every worship service growing up, uh, probably, I mean, almost without exception, it is this phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus. 
Um, but I spent some time unpacking in the book. Um, while um, you know, there's certainly a grounding in, in the biblical text for thinking about that. There's also a way in which, um, if taken to the extreme, which I think in many evangelical and uh, white uh, Baptist circles it has been, to be the beginning and the end of religion. Uh, it's it's a very narrowing. Uh, way of understanding what it means to be Christian. And in fact, what it ends up doing is allows one to be fairly comfortable with one's own relationship with God while being fairly irresponsible and unresponsive uh, to the claims of justice um, and and equality um, all around us, Um, which, you know, if we take a more holistic view of the Bible, is certainly not a biblical way uh, to to be in the world. You know, it just, it, it, it emphasizes this interiority um, and it's actually fitting. I mean, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, in Letter from Birmingham Jail, which I'd also recommend everybody rereading at this moment and in time, has this just uh, heartbreaking phrase where when he's talking about really res- what, you know, what would be considered in his day respectable mainstream white Christian churches in Birmingham. Uh, and he he's writing in somewhat dismay because he hasn't seen them stand up in uh, solidarity with African Americans just asking, you know, for for equality and and for for civil rights, um, and he he says, "Who are these people sitting so comfortably and safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows?" And I, I think that that is in so many ways um, the way that that personal relationship with Jesus theological concept has functioned. Really, has been to. Uh, lull our consciousness to sleep about things that are outside our the stained glass windows and outside our own personal relationship uh, with God. I know that's certainly the case for me that, um, you know, even while our schools were desegregating, um, when I was a kid, that was some 20 years after Brown v. Board of Education, uh, but, it, but Jackson, Mississippi Public Schools um, drug their feet. I never heard one sermon, never heard one Sunday school lesson about uh, what was going on? How how am I to theologically understand what's happening in the very schools I was going to? Because I was going to public schools, um, and there was just no reflection on that on that whatsoever. Um, and I think that's certainly by design, uh, but I think we've really got to um, reevaluate um, even the most even the things we consider to be the most sacred or maybe even unquestionable uh, tenets of our faith, and ask the question: How did this serve um, this commitment to a white supremacist status quo? Um, and if it did serve that, what is what do we need to do um, about that today? Let's talk about reverse discrimination. Uh, this is the idea that discrimination against whites has become as big of a problem as discrimination against blacks and other minorities. I've, I've had these conversations in the last six months, and I tend to think of it in terms of white people trying to play the victim card as a crutch instead of actually doing the hard work of listening uh, apologizing, adapting, and being a part of the change we need to see in this world. And your research found that 69% of white Republicans believe that they are being discriminated against. Mind you, the vast number of white evangelicals tend to be Republican. Um, how do you begin to have a conversation with a white person who believes that through all of this, they're being discriminated against? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, that that number um, has been very steady and, and growing a bit uh, among white Christians, among white whites overall, among white, particularly among kind of the more conservative people who are conservative, Republican, or Christian, uh, and are white. Um, and what we in fact see is that it's become, um, I think, so entrenched that when we ask people um, about 
who is facing a lot of discrimination in the country today, uh, which is kind of a slightly different way of asking um, that, you know, that question. Um, for example, white Republicans are um, as like are, are, who basically see themselves as facing um, are, 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 are as likely to say that they themselves are experiencing a lot of discrimination as they are any other group that we ask about. African-Americans, Jews, Catholics, immigrants, uh, uh, gay or lesbian people, transgender people, you name it. Um, uh, they, they have um, uh, considered themselves to be as discriminated against as any of these groups. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, this, this leveling out and, and refusal to see the, the continued um, unlevel playing field is a, is a really consistent and highly predictive um, attitude um, with with vote in 2016. Um, so that is those who uh, white among whites who are uh, likely to either see uh, reverse you know so-called reverse discrimination or were likely to just say no no one anymore is experiencing discrimination. Uh, they were much more likely to support President Trump um, than than Hillary Clinton. It was like a highly highly predictive as predictive as partisanship in fact um, uh, for that. So that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, it's especially remarkable when you look around, um, and there's just so much available data to show the continued disparities um, that we see um, in the country. You know, it is, it is still true that um, you know, proportionately, um, an African American is more than twice as likely uh, to be shot uh, by a police officer. Um, our, the COVID, the, the COVID-19 data, you know, points us out that African Americans and Latinos are are twice as likely. Uh, to uh, uh, become sick and and to die um, than than white Americans are, um, you can see it economic disparity data, health disparity data. I mean, you you take your pick. I mean, it is uh, there was a new report um, you know out last week about about the death penalty as, as well. That you know uh, if you if you kill someone white, um, you're much more likely uh, to get the death penalty. Um, if you're African American and you're um, uh, Convicted, uh, you're also more likely than someone white uh, in similar circumstances to to, get, to receive the death penalty. So the, the evidence is all around us. Um, I I think what's going on is, is there's just a, a pure defensiveness, and we're at this we're at this tipping point in the country, which I think informs us as well that um, we're you know I think one of the biggest problems is that white Christians have thought of themselves. Um, as owners of the country, um, or as the country, even right that that America equals white Christian, um, and that everyone else. I mean, uh, FDR actually, you know, one of our most, uh, you know, our, our someone talked about as a progressive president, um, actually said um, that that the uh, the country is a is a is a is a Protestant country, and everybody else is here by sufferance. So I mean, he even excluded Catholics. Uh, you know, from the group of people who are like properly uh, or primarily American. So the sentiment, I think, is very old. Um, and, and part of what we're experiencing is this sense of the country changing around us. Um, and that's real. Um, so, you know, 10 years ago or a little more than that in 2008, uh, when we had our presidential election in 2008, the country was 54 percent white and Christian. Uh, so comfortably, just from a demographic standpoint, white and Christian, today that number is 44 percent. Right. So we have gone just in a dozen years from being a country that was majority white and Christian to one that's no longer majority white and Christian. And I think as that um, as, as that demographic reality is sinking in, um, it is setting off, I think, this this very visceral response of fear and loss of control and loss of kind of being the dominant 
you know, force um, in America or our loss of being America even. And so I think that's part of what's going on here is this denial that, you know, and this feeling that we're being discriminated against. But I think what it's really about is a loss of dominance um, uh, in the country. And that's the feeling. Um, and, and when you hear President Trump talking, I think explicitly to evangelicals um, or especially evangelicals, you'll hear him say, kind of tap the sphere and say, look, you know, the country's changing. Uh, he said in 2016 on the home stretch uh, uh, on the tra- on the campaign trail, the country's changing. If you don't elect me now, you'll never see another president like me. And it's a straight up appeal uh, to kind of uh, a kind of white uh, dominance coming off of an African-American, you know, our first African-American president. Um, uh, and, and I'm your he, he said, I'm your last hope. I'm your last chance. Um, and he would talk about himself as turning back the clock. Um, on these demographic changes in the country. So I think all of his criticism of African-American leaders, his clamp down on immigration and anti-immigrant rhetoric is all about kind of preserving uh, a version of white Christian America that I think is very appealing um, to many to many white Christians. And it comes out in these kinds of survey questions um, of uh, feeling like the victim. But I, I think it really is more about um, victim in the sense of, of it is a loss, I think, but it's a loss of something I think that, that white Christians never really should have felt ownership of in the first place. Every day I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we live in two different worlds. Um, you know, there's a very clear divide in worldviews. Um, some of these stats uh, that I read earlier just attest to it. So, so how do we have a conversation with someone um, and what feels like a different world? Yeah, you know, I, I I think there's a couple of things here. Um, I, you know, I'm convinced that um, you know, there's this balancing act. Like on the one hand, um, there are some things that are there are some disagreements. I, I think where um, you're not going to be able to find some common ground. Um, and, and I think there's there's some places where um, you know you have to kind of stake out a, a truth claim. And, and I, I think you know all all views aren't equally valid. I think someone's saying, look, you know. We need to go back to um, the 1950s, um, you know, which is which is actually a, a, a view that uh, the majority a majority of Republicans um, actually support that say that um, countries changed for the worst uh, since the 1950s, uh, uh, for example, and and white Christians of all kinds, mainline Catholic and evangelical, all agree with that with that sentiment. Um, now, I think that's a simply wrongheaded, backward, you know, way to go. I think we had to have, you know, a robust debate about that, not an agreement or a kind of middle ground about that. Um, but, you know, on the other thing I, I would say is that I think, you know, the biggest thing that would, I think, help um, here, particularly on these issues of race, if the, is, is if white Christians would stop just talking to each other um, and develop some relationships with, um, you know, our, our fellow African-American brothers and sisters here um, and, and do this in a genuine and long-term way. I think that's really what changes people's attitudes. Um, and I certainly saw that you know, in, the, in this case study I did around you know, these two First Baptist churches in Macon, that it, it wasn't a principled thing or, or, a, or an argument. I think we can all kind of line up our arguments. Um, but I think when we're, we're in relationship with someone, and I put it this way, like on the, on the issues of race, I think if we could get close enough and have enough relationships um, with um, African-Americans um, and, and in our own communities, not in some abstract way, but, um, and that would change because what, what would happen is, and this is what, you know, I saw in, in, in Macon um, uh, is that when 
when the when the white church then saw members of the African American church hurting after Dylan Reef gunned down nine African Americans um, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, in the name of starting a race war, and by the way, in the name of Christianity, um, uh, that that uh, that it wasn't an abstract choice. I think uh, among uh, the white church to um, you know reach out um, and to um, have preach about it, to have Bible studies about this event, to, to sort of come together, you know, around this. Um, it wasn't abstract, but it was because they had friendships and they saw a friend who was in deep pain and distraught about it. And it, it, that moves one in a different kind of way. So I think we're not going to get very far if we are having ideological debates, um, you know, the kind that kind of pop up on your Facebook page, um, uh, but but I think if if it's in relationship, I think it's the relationships that are ultimately going to change things. So I, I think the best thing we could do is to try to build those relationships and to try to um, you know and and also to tell our own stories in a way that's truthful. Um, I know certainly that's been part of my journey is being able to try to tell the truth. That usually leads to some other insight. Try to tell the truth about that, and, and it's a it's a it's a step by step journey. Um, so I think there's truth telling, and I think also kind of being in the right relationship you know, with, um, with other folks who can help, um, uh, kind of help shift our view, not because of an intellectual argument, uh, but because we are in a relationship and we love and care about another person and we see them in pain, see them in anger, and we want to do something about that. We want to understand it. All right. Send us off with this. You see the numbers. I'm a cynic. What's giving you hope for the future of American Christianity? Yeah, um, a couple of things. Um, I, I have to say I, I am somewhat more hopeful than I was even when I, I wrapped up the book. Um, so I turned in the manuscript last fall, um, you know, for the book to come out this summer. Uh, and for a couple of reasons, just because I, I think I've seen some things over the summer that I would not have thought I would see. Um, so I'll give you a couple, a couple of examples. One, uh, in my home state of Mississippi, um, you know, we saw over the summer – in the course of just a few weeks, um, the uh, Mississippi uh, state legislature and the governor signed a bill uh, that would finally remove the Confederate battle flag from uh, the, the state flag of Mississippi. Right? It was the only one that, with the, that still fully has the or had the uh, Confederate battle flag there. Um, and not only that, in general, um, you know, you, you, you really can't swing a dead cat in Mississippi without hitting a Baptist. But um, the, um, but the, Mississippi, the official arm, the Mississippi Baptist Convention, the official arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, actually, uh, before they voted, called on the governor and the state legislature to take that action. And they cited uh, the fact that, it was, that, it, that while many white you know, Christians don't have a problem with it and see it you know, connected to heritage in some way, uh, but still cited that it was painful. Uh, it was a painful reminder of slavery and, and white supremacy to uh, many African-Americans and, and, and most African-Americans in the state um, and, and, and called on the, the state legislature to, to do that as a kind of moral and religious thing. So that's one thing. Um, the other uh, piece of it, I, I think, is, um, you know, that some of the, and I was spent some time in Richmond uh, doing research for the book. And. You know, I walked down Monument Avenue, which had these five massive statues to Confederate leaders um, that had been stood for over 100 years. They were put there in the early 20th century. 
for the most part, um, uh, as as you know, uh, as real statements of white supremacy. I mean, they were they were decades after the Civil War when they were put up. They were really put up there to kind of send the message of who is really in charge, um, uh, despite the fact that the war had been lost. Um, and and those four of the five of those monuments, uh, or at least the statues at the center of those monuments, have come down um, over the summer. And in one case, um, there's the First First Baptist Richmond uh, stands at a at a kind of traffic circle um, with uh, I think it's Stonewall Jackson's monument that, that's there. And uh, a church member rang their historic bell um, as the statue was removed. Um, and that's the same bell uh, that the same church offered to the Confederacy 150 years ago to be melted down to make cannons to defend slavery. Um, and, and so I, I think when you see an arc like that, um, we're not there by any means. And, and these are symbols and symbols are much easier to remove and, and to deconstruct than culture and theology. Um, but nonetheless, I think they're significant, um, and, and they're not things I would have imagined happening even, you know, um, uh, a year ago, um, essentially. So I, I think if there's hope, I think that, that there's at least some hope to tackle these outward symbols of white supremacy. Um, and then I think the question before us now is, will we, in addition to doing that, will we do the work to dismantle uh, the white supremacy that is still propping up? Uh, so many parts of our theology and church practices and our identity. Just to clarify, did you say sling a dead cat? <laughs> I did. I've I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> oh well, welcome to Mississippi. No, I'm gonna, I'm going to somehow find a way to slip that into a, a conversation in the coming days. Uh, good thing we don't have a lot of you know biblical literists that listen to this podcast because you see dead cats slung across America this afternoon. Um, cause Robert, <laughs> Robert Jones told us to. <laughs> That's funny. Well, if you want to stay connected with Robert, you can follow his work at PRRI.org. Of course, follow him on Twitter, uh, purchase white too long, wherever books are sold. Uh, Robert, thank you for inviting us to not avoid or to blindly look past, but to see and to do something about the entangled mess of racism and religion and the white American church. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.